Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. Today for Spirit in Action, we'll be heading to Greenfire Farm to talk to Dick Hogan about their work and insights relative to the environment. But first, I thought it would be worthwhile to ask our local history expert, Myron Buckholz, about the ways that the USA has thought about our relationship to the earth. So, let's go to Myron for episode 8 of History and Our Best Future for a brief comment before we go to Dick Hogan and Greenfire. I'm wondering, Myron, what you can tell me about the ways that the people in the United States used to conceptualize our relationship to what we now call the environment. I think the nation probably started out with the idea that we needed to subdue this land and it's us against nature, as opposed to seeing ourselves as a part of the ecology. Is that the way you read American history? And do you see points at which our thinking changed or was refined? One of my favorite stories is to tell people about how the story of Paul Bunyan actually ends, and that is that he cut down the last tree standing. If you've ever read the book Collapse, about the collapse of civilizations, you know that there were plenty of stories about people just abusing their flora and fauna until there was nothing left and the entire culture collapsed. We were on that path until the 1970s, uh, 1960s, the awareness began. And when people started to look at the rivers and watch them burn like the Cuyahoga, the Ohio would have floating globs of flotsam and jetsam on fire. People actually became aware and interested. Of course, we can go back earlier than that to the early 1900s with Teddy Roosevelt doing some things to save some forest land and some national parks. And even actually earlier than that to the Grant administration, which started the first national park. But it was very small until the 1960s and 70s when we really began to pay attention to our environment. I always attribute a lot of that environmentalism to our space program. There is that wonderful picture of the, quote, little blue marble, unquote, when millions of Americans and people all across the planet got to see our fragile little Earth from outer space I feel confident in saying that had a lot to do with people's increasing awareness that our environment is finite and we need to take care of it. I don't know if this is accurate, but I'm pretty sure there's a widely held idea that corporations are responsible for a lot of the despoiling of our environment. The mining, dumping pollutants into the air and into the ground. Is that what you read from American history? The profit motive has caused people to try and make as much money as they can as fast as they can. 
Now, it would be, I think, an error to just blame corporations because our consumer lifestyle also demands that we have more and more stuff. But I believe the great majority of blame does lie with the corporations, whether we log the entire Chippewa Valley or sand mine paradise for a few years' worth of profit, leaving behind poverty and pollution. Extraction mining has a long history of enriching just a few and leaving the rest with the two Ps, poverty and pollution. And so, yes, I do put a lot of blame on our corporate model and our for-profit model. And what about our conception of how we relate to other species? And I'm taking into account there that this nation started with somehow this distinction as if people with dark skin were a different species, but also the other animals and plants. How do we see ourselves different now than what people saw at the dawn of this experiment called the United States of America? At some point, it is hard for me to blame the settlers and the people of the 1800s for thinking that our wildlife was infinite. The land was so rich and so teeming with so many animals. It would take a tremendously far-sighted person to think that, that could actually end. Unfortunately, of course, we learned the hard way, and it did. Then we get back to the 1960s again, when there's this wonderful realization that we do live in a finite world, and we had a couple of books. The most famous one, I suppose, that everybody knows is Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and the idea that there is a connectivity to all of the living creatures on Earth, and we need to be mindful of that. My fear is that we've forgotten that. And whether you read about the die-off of the bee colonies or the butterflies, the Great Barrier Reef, and so on, is very concerning. I'm pretty sure that people who are into environmentalism probably highly prize science, which takes us from being the center of the universe to being one of the species on that planet. Is that an accurate reading that's reflected in how we think about things as a nation? I think yes. The march of scientific knowledge goes all the way back to Aristotle and before. People began to write things down and make observations and think about their natural world. We have some major breakthroughs over the course of the 1900s, in large part because of increasing technology, challenges the original thinking, the Scopes trial, challenging the idea of what we think about scientifically as compared to what we are told historically. In the current sense, we have this tremendous battle going on now with genetically modified foods. How far can science actually take that? And how bad is that for our overall environment and our life here on Earth? These are questions that are going to be answered. They certainly are causing an interesting discussion right now. I fear some things that we have been promised science is going to feed the world and end starvation since the 1970s. That has not proven to be true. So my biggest concern is that when we start to genetically modify our organisms, what is the next step? And with the corporate model, it is to control and patent genes and chromosomes to the point where only a few people are actually in control of much of the things that we eat. And I don't believe that is a good path to go down. Thanks, Myron Buckholz, for that input. And now on to our main guest for Spirit in Action, 
Across the USA and the world, of course, there are individuals and groups who are experimenting with ways of living that will turn us back from the calamities of global warming and species eradication and resource depletion. One such explorer of ecological alternatives is Dick Hogan, and his home base is called Greenfire Farm. Dick self-describes as a regenerative community design engineer and co-evolutionary generalist. At the same time that Dick thinks profoundly about the ways that humans fit in the grand scheme, he uses his design engineering skills to seek out optimal methods of maximizing the good of all. We head now by phone to join Dick Hogan at home in Ohio at Greenfire Farm. Dick, I'm excited to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Yeah, great to be here, and it's been quite a while since we last talked, and great to catch up a bit. Yeah, way back in 2001 or 2002, I think, is when we visited you at Greenfire Farm, back when I was checking out possibilities for being part of an eco-village or eco-community or sustainable community that maybe would have been where my path would take me. But that was before I started Northern Spirit Radio. So there's been a lot of changes here in the ensuing 15 years or so, and a lot of changes there as well, I'm sure. What led you to track me down now, Dick? Well, I was delighted to pick up the latest copy of Friends Journal that focused on gender and sexuality, and it's right in the flow with the things that we're advancing here in this place and region. And then to recognize your ad in the Friends Journal, and remember, oh, that's that's Mark, and yeah, it's been a while. It uh, was a, a prompt for me to say hi and catch up a bit, so thanks for continuing to do what you do, and certainly the Friends Journal for being on a continuing journey of awareness and sharing the best that friends have to offer and beyond. And just how did the Friends Journal issue on sexuality and gender identity particularly connect with what you're doing at Greenfire? at the roots of the culture of domination, and in part, one can trace that to the 1493 Interstitera Papal Bull that essentially strengthened that the whole approach to others having power over and domination and dehumanization process that flowed out of the uh, relationship with Europeans to the Americas and uh, how that got solidified in the U.S. constitutional law in the Supreme Court in 1823. Then to recognize the roots of this discrimination and domination uh, has spread into virtually every aspect of daily life. And then the very healing, the very nature of love and, and all those relationships goes right to the content in this friend's journal as well. Getting to the roots of stuff, you know. Yeah, getting to the root causes of problems is just so important. It sounds like you've been a longtime reader of the friend's journal. Have you contributed articles to it as well? I've been invited several times, but uh, I've also felt like there's more to come here. I, I'll, I'll, when I'm feeling really led to write, it'll, it'll happen. That writing is increasing in how we uh, are showing up in the world with our various uh, programs and engagements and co-creations right now, and uh, writing is a necessary part of that and many conversations as well. Well, exactly how have you been getting out the word into the world about Green Fire and what you're doing there? Well, uh, just an example, this uh, Saturday I will be speaking to a regional group here, a multicultural genealogical center that has strong Quaker roots as well. 
I will be uh, presenting a perspective on peace, earth care, regeneration, and the uh, roots of war and the domination culture, and how can we uh, create such a strong life witness and, and life ways that those roots are addressed and those things fade to the history of, of uh, back in a less sensitive and less integral time. I've also been invited by WOUB through a grad student program working on uh, veterans telling their stories. Around the 4th of July, they'll be the first of a three-part series, one of me telling a bit of my story as a veteran of the Fleet Ballistic Missile Nuclear Submarine duty in the West Pacific in the 60s, and how that uh, led to peeling back the layers and the last 35 years of pursuing the content, the daily life that uh, we're surrounded in and, and have created around us now. So let's introduce the listeners to Green Fire. When did you start and talk about some of the appendages, and then we'll go into them more deeply as we can. So Green Fire Farm, when did it start? Okay, the name Green Fire came into existence for myself and my family in the mid-'80s while at Woman Institute of Wilmington College and inspired in part by essentially the relationship between the sun and the earth and the earth liking to produce a biological and cultural diversity and resilient uh, and profound green matrix of uh, well-being. So honoring that relationship from the sun and the earth and the integrity of uh, the earth process. Through the 80s, it began to emerge as a continuing direction through institutional engagements and on to where we're at now about 20 years here in southeast Ohio near Athens, Appalachian foothills, Ohio River Basin bioregion, and uh, we're really delighted to be in this new and ancient uh, and I would consider re-enchanting forest. And Green Fire, as you said, started out as your family. You've been doing all kinds of work with community and in networks. The people living there on the farm right now, who's there? Okay, here on this land base, Green Fire is 75 acres. We have Two households, essentially, uh, myself and my daughter and her partner, they're starting up Squeaky Duck Farmstead, and we're collectively gathering the next uh, additional households to land here uh, in terms of being a community that uh, is co-creating a regenerative pathway forward. So actually today we have new gardens going in and neighbors pitching in to help that happen and lots of activity in that regard. So I know that also Green Fire Farm is connected with CSA or maybe two CSAs. I'm not sure how you work that with your daughter and that household. How many CSAs, how long, how big a part of what you do is that? Okay, the actual getting underway with the CSA, the first multiple shares are being created this year by daughter Erin and uh, partner Kyle. And there is one CSA involved along with a new uh, farm stand by the road and multiple farmers markets engagements in parallel. But were you doing CSA before as part of Green Fire Farm, or has it always been more towards the construction, other portions of how you live ecologically? Yeah, it was research, education, and outreach, and then hosting and designing workshops and play shops along the way, developing the pathway for the emergence of a forest garden solar micro village, which is now taking place. Okay, so the village is really just getting kicked off right now, is what you're saying. That's right. It's been about uh, 35 or 40 years of kind of warm-up in various settings and a lot of research and outreach and teaching and workshops and all that to feel ready to get onto this stage. 
talk a little bit about what got you to that point, because you mentioned about being in Wilmington College and having some of the roots going down into the earth there. Did you grow up in a farming community or living ecologically in any sense? No, I was pretty much uh, come from a blue-collar family, originally out of Toledo, then the Sonoran Desert of uh, Arizona as a teenager. I consider that my ecosystem of upbringing in the Sonoran Desert and White Mountain, Superstition Mountain area there. And yeah, that was basically a non-farm, non-agricultural family, and those concerns emerged about eight or so years, nine years after uh, nuclear submarine duty and peeling back the roots of the war system I was experiencing, peak of the Cold War, peak of Vietnam, and began to really seriously, as a transnational design engineering person, seeing that whole uh, way of society functioning as fundamentally dysfunctional and uh, causing war and uh, what are the roots of and solutions to all that. Then in the late 70s, that uh, really began to be a serious journey forward and fresh look at everything then on, and we're starting to talk about where it went. You know, I really would like to put together all the pieces that lead to Green Fire Farm or, and creating an urban center and a regeneration center. So I'm going to ask you to amplify just a little bit the steps along the way. You said a blue-collar family. Did you at least do construction? Because I know that's part of what you do now. What kind of blue-collar was it? Well, my nuclear family was basically small business entrepreneurial oriented and urban settings. And I've concentrated in small towns and villages and now rural uh, southeast Ohio for 20 years as a setting to reach out to kind of the sacrifice zone of Appalachia, the multiple extraction things have gone on here with coal and oil and iron and now shale gas operations and so on. And so the mission here has been focusing on the renewal of Appalachia here in uh, basically rural Athens County, southeast Ohio. Part of what I'm driving at, Dick, is where did you get the skills or the motivation to do this? Now, you, you worked on a nuclear submarine. Engineering, evidently, is a part of your training. Right. In uh, junior high and high school, I was kind of inventive and liked to make things, both at home and in the, the shop and electronics and machine shop areas. That turned into uh, being an interior communications electrician on a fleet ballistic missile Polaris submarine. And that was highly technical, and it was a high-tech uh, underworld water scene that was just uh, extraordinarily dense in terms of technology and, and the mission. And how long did you do that? That was essentially a four-year hitch with the Navy. I got a rarely release to go back to school, and the five patrols, three months, submerged at a time without breaking the surface with sitting there at readiness to do battle stations middle. There's so much of that I want to follow, but I want to focus in on green fire. When did you consciously make the decision, get the land, and have the mission of, as it says on your website, it's an unfolding vision of a vibrantly healthy biosphere with all its inhabitants living in a mutually enhancing, balanced relationship nurturing the unfolding of the new story, dream, and era, the ecozoic. When did that become clear to you? It emerged through the 80s while uh, doing some similar stuff with Woman Institute at Wilmington College. We gave that 10 years there. It was 25 or up to 40 years too early for that setting. We gave it a go for 10 years and uh, all the while, and that had a 25-acre land base there with intentions for faculty, staff, and students to do those things together as part of the Institute. 
so maybe it all starts with Woolman Institute in Wilmington. What was Woolman Institute? A lot of people probably don't know who John Woolman was. Yeah, Woolman was the one that really first got my attention uh, with Quakers. And I was uh, coming out of a UCC and Lutheran background earlier in life. And as a World Peacemaker group formed as an ad hoc group of a UCC church in central Ohio, town Winchester, Ohio, one of our, our missions was essentially it was in the period of the late 70s of the peak of the Cold War still. And uh, we took on a mission there to basically uh, abolish nuclear weapons and so on. That turned into a uh, two years in a row, East High School in Columbus, a pair of uh, Reverse the Arms Race Federation of Ohio International Conference. In that setting, which we helped create that group statewide, and then in that group, that's where I learned about the early beginnings of Woman Institute at Wilmington College. So I was exploring Peace Church makeup at that time and next steps post-design engineering career and what really fed the heart and the soul. So that was an exploration to Wilmington and turned out to be a place to have a custom educational program and help the institute form and get underway there. So it was Woolman's witness of, uh, of helping end slavery, and, and at least in that early form that we understood, and his consistent and sensitive walk in life spoke to me, and then the staff at the college was willing to put together a special team approach to what I would do there to wrap up undergrad work. And so I had a four-member team, and we created not only my custom majors, but peace education, sustainable and appropriate regenerative technologies in agriculture and community service. Uh, so three different focuses there. And then on to Woman Institute and land base and interdisciplinary programs for all incoming freshmen and practical applications and research on the farm as well part of the Peace Studies in the, in the Wilmington College Peace Resource Center in the Hiroshima Nagasaki Collection. A lot of words there, but that was kind of the context that really got moving for me. You know, part of what, from what I've read about Green Fire and the various things that you're associated with, it also seems like you should have had a philosophy major along the way. I think, in effect, you did. I focused on that uh, with my undergrad work both at Bowling Green University for a while and then a very solid year and a half of that, two years at Wilmington College, and then continuous ever since as kind of a holistic, integrative, spirit-led, which turned into essentially looking at the new story, new cosmology, and how uh, permaculture, indigenous, neo-indigenous, and a range of things fit together in a coherent new story. So there's a lot of words there that have real strong significance. You know, you talk about bioregional or sustainable or whatever. What does that mean in practical terms about how you live your life on Green Fire Farm? Well, an example is, of course, now we have a strong relocalization movement underway, resilience movements, transition movements, permaculture. It's basically a relocalization and regeneration, which kind of prepares the way for something that might be sustainable. Preferred since the mid-80s, regenerative as a more holistic, more inclusive, less co-opted language that and practices that essentially profoundly attempt to nurture the well-being and the connection of things locally, both biologically and spiritually and socially and economically. And so an example would be a way of natural building that multiple ways that we're involved with here one is a hybrid cob passive solar cottage integrated with a reflecting light off a custom-built pond in wetlands, a thousand years or more on pennies on the dollar and hand done without power tools. I mean, that's one approach to drawing on materials on hand for high-quality, long-life artifacts that is good for re-inhabiting uh, place and region. 
We're also developing a closed-loop, more of a technologically-oriented closed-loop human habitat bio-shelter. It looks a lot like a greenhouse, but it does so much more. That's a whole conversation in itself. So we've got the first North American prototype here in the front yard, about 40 feet from here, and it's now about to go viral in Scandinavia on two of the three of the four other scales of these bio-shelters, and that's four and a half, five years of effort getting that ready to go. Are those the pods that originate, I think, from Iceland? Well, that's the first place that's going to get to build and uh, manifest a 8,000-square-foot three-level called an agripod. Permaculture Guild Iceland is is the facilitating group, and the first one there will go together late this year and early next, and that will be a three-level unit with human habitat, atrium area, kind of a essentially a community center and a beyond greenhouse approach to regenerative food, energy, and water. It'll be debugged in Reykjavik and then moved to a rural site nearby as Permaculture Guild Iceland uh, gets on with their part after introducing it in the city, do it in the rural Iceland as well. So that's one of many projects that are underway. So you said three-story. You said it looks like a greenhouse Give me a little bit more fleshing out of what this means. What are the walls made out of, the floors, what's holding it together? Okay, in this case, this first alpha version of the AgriPod will be aluminum, overall aluminum extrusions on the arches on the outside, both the inner and outer arches, which carry the the inner and outer glazings, and the internal structuring also will be structural aluminum, most of it bolted together and also some hot-dipped iron, hot-dipped galvanized iron in terms of some of the internal structuring. Then you have an approach to super-insulation and shading, as well as temperature, humidity control, and generating fresh water done with one liquid. That same liquid is a soap solution that is pumped to bubble generators and produces zillions of uh, bubbles in a matter of five minutes and fills up all the cavities between the inner and outer glazings there, I'm imagining that's going to come out or somewhere around 32 to 35 inches of dead airspace filled with bubbles for insulation and shading. And when the bubbles are not needed or they're in place, then you can shift to that same liquid being distributed on spray bars on the outside of the inner glazing, and then you get essentially then the activity of condensing transpired plant water onto that cool surface, which gives you fresh drinking water or recycle that water back to make up for the process. And at the same time, you get temperature and humidity control in that same intersection of thermodynamics. So you get all those with one liquid and a couple, one circulator and at one pump. And you say the first place that's trying this out is actually Iceland. Yeah, at that scale. We have the first prototype right here that's getting ready. It's a rapid prototype that will get wrapped up and operational by the end of this year, feeding back everything we've done with our additional research over the last three to five years. Is the pod significantly different in Iceland or, say, up here in Wisconsin than it would be near Athens, Ohio, where you live? They would be adjusted for thermal dynamics that are necessary. The design will be adapted to each location. If you have a a cooling or a heating load, geothermal can be incorporated, biochar, rocket mass heaters. There's a range of ways to configure the, the growing systems and We're still at the alpha stage on putting those teams together, and we have the world's best practitioners as part of the team. What do you mean by the world's best practitioners? Folks who basically have institutes uh, in Europe that uh, are involved, and the city of Lindum, if not Lindum, Oslo, I have my location right there, yes, 
a regional waste uh, handling outfit of that city, has a operational similar scale of 40 inches of, of uh, insulation space for that location. And there is data from that site that we have now that shows a roughly a 58 to 60 times better carbon footprint than the best Dutch greenhouses going because of the dynamics of this liquid solar technology that I described earlier. It's all open source, Creative Commons, basically acknowledge the source and run with it or be part of the, the PodNet team and, and benefit from uh, a cooperative team around the world as we share what we're learning and move it forward. The AgriPod engineering and the whole design sounds many thousands of years in advance of what Cobb housing originated from. Did you just leap from one to the other, or are there mid-steps that you've been going through as well? Well, before and since, I mean, it actually started with a passive solar design and construction as a family project in 1980 up in Lancaster, Ohio area. And so that was a envelope house with a fully integrated greenhouse and a Gambrel roof line. It looked like a barn, but it had a envelope house and greenhouse fully integrated in permaculture landscape. That was 1980. And various ecological retrofits and small-scale projects that I worked on, developed, and uh, participated in in various ways over the interim years. The Cobb was the most basic of engagements in order to have absolute lowest cost, lowest impact, indigenous, new, indigenous, re-inhabit the landscape kind of criteria with the first pass here on site that we chose to do to build those skills and those capabilities and those sensitivities with those questions of deconsumption and regeneration and permaculture and natural building all integrating at international level workshops here done locally for local people and people from several countries, two years in a row. So you've been training the world as you're learning, I'm assuming, because you're doing experiments there. I've seen some of the pictures via your website. And folks, the website is greenfirefarm.org. There's more websites coming soon, and we'll have the links on northernspiritradio.org. Speaking of Northern Spirit Radio, that is our website, northernspiritradio.org, where we have almost 11 years of our programs for free listening and download. We've got links to our guests, so when you track down Dick Hogan and the folks of Green Fire Farm, the link's there, as well as all the other guests for the past 11 years. There's also a place to post comments, and we love two-way communication post your comment, and get your voice heard. Also, there's a place to donate. This is supported entirely by your donations. It's not by the government. It's not by corporations. It's because of your willingness to see these kind of broadcasts go on. But even more important than supporting Northern Spirit Radio is to support your local community radio station. Because they're locally run and organized, they provide you a slice of music and news that you're not going to get from corporate media, not even from public media. So remember to support your local community radio station. Again, Dick Hogan is with us. He's part of Green Fire Farms, and there's a lot more adjectives that we could use to describe this. Let's continue on with that discussion, Dick. At various times as you're talking, I've been thinking, and I'm fairly scientifically, technically oriented myself, but part of me felt overwhelmed at all the considerations. How important is it for the people who inhabit these houses to be oriented towards the engineering degrees, what the soap bubbles come from, the salt and the pumps, how this all work? Is is this 
necessary to the consciousness that one needs to inhabit to be living peaceably with the earth? I think the way we're perceiving and attempting to practice this is a building bridges to something that's really going to work in the long term, and this is one kind of a regenerative food, energy, and water solution to broad-scale, much more energy-intensive ways for what comes out of the, pro- the end, end result. So minimizing footprint and impact and getting on to moving in a regenerative level, this is kind of a technological bridge to much more sensitive uh, ecosystem nurturing and and, uh, bringing together the dynamics of earth healing right relations in all our relations. So again, we are in such an extreme, all of us in an extreme situation with climate and consumption and population and extraction and so on, concentrating the minimizing of the uh, the ecological and carbon footprints are critical to many, many dimensions here. This is a holistic approach, and it's hard to be too aware of all those connections of things that, of course, Woolman was quite good at being sensitive and seeing the connection of things back in his day. So what is the update of that now? He and Otto Leopold and many others saw the ecological integrity and the integrity, of course, of the community and the very nature of economics and what is the modern manifestation of slavery that now has been kind of installed around the world in, in various ways in the corporate modalities. That's a whole other topic area. But it's part of the consciousness that you're approaching living with and because living is not only what am I eating, but it's how am I living in relationship to my neighbors. Yes, the neighbor is human and non-human, and right relations, all our relations, and it's kind of a, an acknowledging we are each other and welcome home to that reality and what is before us to do and be right in front of us that uh, we don't often recognize. Another way to paraphrase that is domination culture, and that's, again, that's kind of a shorthand lingo for what has come out of the, among other sources, even much further back, We'll go to the 1493 papal bull called the Inner Cetera by Pope Paul VI, I believe it was, and set up a dynamic that basically allowed the Christian princes and kings of Europe to come to the Americas and just really wreak destruction at every level. So uh, recognizing that that got set in U.S. constitutional law by the Marshall Court in 1823, and then solidified as a modality around the world is the main part of the dynamic of this, what can be called domination culture or the doctrine of discovery and doctrine of domination. The, even the language, the language, the laws are basically, it takes idealized cognitive models to even begin to understand how in depth we've got surrounded by all that and what level of opening up to all that and essentially how to dismantle that doctrine of domination heal the earth and share the love, all that as a integral action of coming home together and nurturing and, and uh, loving right relationships in all our relations. So how much of the work that you do, Dick, seems to be on the practical side of things? Here's what you build cob out of. Here's what you do a, an agripod out of. You know, Here's how you do passive solar, active solar those kind of technical things, and how much of the learning has to be on that, I might call it philosophical, it's worldview-rooted items. How does that divide out? Or these always go hand-in-hand, or do people just come and say, no, I just want to know how to hook up my solar? Well, I think that's a different need and interest level for everyone, and they're going to show up with different needs in that regard. 
I think it's uh, a disservice to others not to at least uh, make others aware that these things are profoundly connected and they're profoundly connected in ways often that keep us from seeing the larger picture, keep us in essentially in uh, isolation and boxes, which is one of the main goals of domination culture, in order for it to have essentially the, the privilege by a few at the cost of everything else. I guess my question is really about how much effort you have to put towards the education of people, leading people to look at, think about, explore these things. People are probably fairly easily led, or at least a lot of people, towards technical details. Here's how you plug it in. Here's how you cut it off. Here's the right mixture of materials. People are used to thinking that way, whereas the regenerative patterns that you'd like people to be thinking about and exploring, I think that maybe our society is less willing to go in that direction. So how much effort do you have to put when you lead a workshop? Maybe you can give me a practical example. You lead a workshop, how much of it is on the thought side versus the practical side? At this stage, we are entering into a new period that will more fully integrate all that than we ever have before, so that every for every action, we have a consciousness arriving, potentially, that informs the hand from what to do with sculpting with Cobb or making bubbles, how that is connected to the new universe story. How, how do are we part of that flow or are separate from that? And what guides any, any given action so that we have the capacity then to feel that energetic flow from the very nature of the unfolding of the universe in the way we eat, how we build, how we talk, and how we keep open space to continually have a rising level of shared understanding, resonance with that primary understandings or primary being conscious to and awake with our larger self. So it becomes one flowing, as, and then in some quicker language, we have this ocean of light. Well, the ocean of light is in part being responsive to what we have learned about the way the unfolding story, the new story, the story of the universe, and how everything is a uh, derivative of that fundamental, fully connected process. I feel personally that that's part of what I do is integrate the hands-on and the practical, which is coming to a new stage in this stage where folks will be doing their own choices on what kinds of natural building or life support systems that are essentially closed-loop pods in this case, which then will be able to reduce in the long term the amount of hand labor or machine labor to have a high production of climate-controlled, climate-protected growing in harsh conditions. So we've got to integrate it all, and, and there's not an either Either or, it's a both and and much more, and the consciousness constantly rising to go with it. I guess part of what I'm trying to explore is how the last workshop, the play shop that you led, was structured and how the next one is. You say there's a changing consciousness you're trying to embed in this. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out if people want to come and learn with you, is there an identifiable horse or cart? Do you talk about the philosophy before you start getting to the hands-on stuff? How does that work? Where I'm led right now is the updating of this rapid prototype resonance pod. Even the name resonance is a consciousness and energetic connection with the way we approach working as a enjoyable and relatively light 
way to deal with some tough stuff. So the team that is at a given time, say, manifesting a pod or doing a certain portion of operating systems design and installation, will have an opportunity to see how it all works, why we're doing it, and given what's available at a given time to do, then have the hands-on skills of building out details for operation or adding in growing systems that are fully integrated with a permaculture design landscape and small farm operation as well, both inside and outside of the pod. So it's an interconnected whole, and the folks that would be here to do such things would be able to participate in, in market garden, in CSA, in farm stand operation, in the natural building and the residence pod developmental process. And the following on the residence pod at one scale will add in and essentially that 400 square foot footprint will go out to the essentially the internal volume of three floors will give us 7,000 square foot on a fairly small footprint. I'm not going to quote that uh, dimension right now. It's about 80 by 120 with times three levels gives us about 7,000 in that category. So there's two different scales that will relate to this site as we also build capacity for that to be a cooperative operation and new business models that go with all that as we essentially are able to then add in people who become worker, owner, operators of their own small-scale food production operation, either for extended family or enterprise farm scale. There's a lot of variations there, as well as human habitat included in these designs. Even our 400-square-footer will have a place for a tiny house right in the center of that for two people. Mm-hmm. So this is very exciting for people to have a chance to learn integrated hands-on learning. And this is all on your 74-acre plot that you're talking about. You haven't expanded since I was there in the early 2000s? No. Not, not, we haven't added land, although there's probably about 300 acres still available, contiguous, uninhabited, we'd like to add. And we're working with the land reform models that include what happened in 1493. Mm-hmm. I do want to get very concrete So this last year, how have you been disseminating the knowledge? How many workshops or how how often does this happen? This last two and a half or three years has been R&D on the larger scales. And so it's been off-site for the most part, getting ready for this phase while being ready to receive new folks moving on the site as we speak. So I haven't been doing the workshops on site in the last, oh, I guess it's kind of about three years to go through that cycle of innovation and creation of you know product design and its deployment in other locations. And so the other places where you have been sharing the teaching and the learning, where has that been? We have a project in early stages of unfolding in the University of District of Columbia, the University of District of Columbia, the Muirkirk Research Farm. We're in the process of finalizing a memo of understanding for nine-acre innovation center there that will be in collaboration with 24 other universities there in the area on the East Coast. And another beneficiary will be the city of Anacostia. And basically the innovative business models and the innovation centers and the pod technologies are all will be enhancements of what UDC is already doing in very innovative ways there. We're looking at centers here developing green fire here as a Midwest bioregional hub as well as we build up the capacity to share this know-how from this location as well as two places on the West Coast. And our team meeting tomorrow is updating each other on that. There will be three primary partners 
uh, catching up on how we uh, we will be working together at the next level on those distant projects, as well as making this the, the core uh, heartland model right here for the next level manifestation. Basically, preparing the way, building the capacity to do these things. You mentioned to me before we were on the air your current website, greenfirefarm.org, has a fair amount of information. But there's kind of redo happening over this next year because of the changes in the direction, the enhancement of the work that you're doing. Could you mention the other website and what part of the work you're splitting off? We're still picking the domain name, but I think it's it's going to be a Residence Pod Enterprise Network. And that will be concentrating here on mostly on North America, but it's also an integrative hub for the other pod projects going on around the world as well but we're particularly focused here in Turtle Island, North America. That'll be around the resonance dimension, the resonance pods. And uh, the the Ubuntu has a a quality of honoring where that came from, from South Africa, the humanness, the kindness, the mutual self-help qualities that Ubuntu has been about traditionally is another energetic enhancement of how we're approaching this as worker-owned cooperatives and very progressive business models that build the integrity of the local. And so you're really in the midst of this. You've mentioned partners signing on to this. You mentioned you're you're really building your eco-village, your regeneration center there right now. If people are excited about what you've been talking about, what is their ability to link into this? How do they do that? Do they come visit you? Is there an organization? Do they join a site online? How do they connect up with what you're talking about? It would be at this stage an email, a personal phone call, a telephone call, and uh, explore interest and possibilities for any given week or month, what's going on, what kind of potential matches there are for what's currently active. So you're saying that you might have activities going on on the farm that people would come and join you for? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's somewhat ongoing. At this stage, we have uh, people show up here for visiting or longer-term interest on a regular basis and uh, are open for that uh, more now than we were in the last three years of very intensive R&D of the the pod dimensions as we also prepared what's next here on site. And so I hadn't mentioned probably Squeaky Duck Farmstead. We're going in, my daughter and her partner is basically, they're going into their third growing season here and also have a very good Facebook site for what they're doing with those dimensions, Squeaky Duck Farmstead. You'll see a very energetic, very integrating, diverse, small-scale operation there in addition to the things we've been talking about here. It just goes on and on. There's so much that you're exploring. Let me just end with a little bit of discussion about the philosophical underpinnings. Of course, you've talked about John Woolman, and for those who don't know, John Woolman was very active in the U.S. from the area that we call New Jersey in the mid-1700s very active in working against slavery, but also alternate economic systems, alternate ways of connecting with native peoples, simplicity, any number of these kinds of topics. And so therefore, the Woolman Institute was harnessing many of those ideas, or still is, in fact. So some of the thought originates from Woolman Institute and echoes of what John Woolman was so presciently thinking about a couple hundred years ago. Of course, John Woolman didn't have words like sustainability, green resonance, ecopods, agropods. 
He didn't know about nuclear energy or active solar. So the ideas that you're resonating with from what he was talking about back then, is the vocabulary sufficient or are there completely new ideas coming out of what we're discovering as we get away from a domination ideology? It's very important to keep the language understandable. And it's also very important to create new language to reflect the new levels of awareness. So like friends, slavery, and the earth are getting organized for earth care, unity with nature. Earth care and regeneration since 1980, that's kind of one of my lines that pulls it together and holds it for me in a a way that's authentic. And then we have a pattern like home, a pattern language, that's another approach that attempts to uh, help catalyze, inform, and support practical ways of acting as a community commons and real climate solutions in learning action circles. So that's, again, a lot of words, but it's a flow of coming together as a deeply cooperative community near and far at a level that's meaningful for the time we have with the near runaway climate situation. All the things that I'm talking about have roots of basically moving beyond privilege to equality and to right relations with our larger self or the earth and the cosmos. So that's being home and being well. And if we do enough of this at enough intensive connection and awareness, then the healing processes that have the potential for stabilizing, helping stabilize climate as part of the attention. Seeing those connections and feeling those and being aware of that with everything we do and being that change, being that message, it's not a spectator sport. We just got to do it and be it, you know. And it's not going to come from a distance. We have to really be able to carry this out and enjoy it in a lively and enjoyable and spirit-led way in every local situation. Do you see this work as inherently spiritual? For me, I don't think it could be otherwise. It's listening, deep listening practice, so journey inward and journey outward. And they're, you know, fundamentally, profoundly connected. So as we deeply listen to each other, listen to those energies flow through us, then we do something with that as well. Otherwise, we're just uh, wasting that awareness and that, that energy and that potential for healing. Well, you're not wasting it. You're clearly putting it into good work. We've covered a whole lot already, Dick, but there's probably a number of key ideas, key processes, key people that we've missed. Do you want to mention some of those that you'd like to call people's attention to? Yes, and there, there's, there's quite a few. I'll just mention a few here. Um, Stephen Newcomb as a uh, elder, as a Lenape and Shawnee background, who spent 30 years of his life uh, researching and writing a book and quite collaboratively with strong mentors, a book called Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. Very insightful on how the, the language was and, and laws were created to basically put us in, in, in these boxes of this domination culture. So the Doctrine of Discovery is a movie that essentially lifts up that content in Stephen's book in a very powerful way. And if you look at author named Michael Tellinger out of South Africa and the Ubuntu movement there and the Blueprint for Human Prosperity. Very significant work we need to be aware of and, and hold in the light together. The work of Thomas Berry and the uh, Journey of the Universe, the Universe Story, Dream of the Earth, those are kind of strong background areas that give rise to the emergence of Quakers and a new story, Healing Ourselves, Healing the Earth, all as some of the background here for how we walk with this new story and great work and uh, potentially uh, 
in the best of circumstances, we have a possibility for this emerging Echozoic era that comes at the uh, close of the uh, terminal Cenozoic, which is a 65 million year period characterized by the six great mass extinctions and et cetera. So it's a tall order anyway to slice it for anyone that if you're showing up as positive as we can, uh, whatever we can do with what's left, what's still possible, that's kind of what's on the list and carrying it in a spirit-led way. I would be absolutely shocked if all of these were not in Dick Hogan's personal library. So folks, if you go to the greenfirefarm.org website, find phone number and email, you contact Dick, I'm pretty sure he'll let you come take a look at his books. Or, or do I overspeak, Dick? No, this is a, a community commons here, and uh, we, it's a new story commons. So it's certainly uh, encouraged and invited for folks to journey in any way they're led. Again, folks, we've been talking with Dick Hogan. The website you want to start from is greenfirefarm.org. On that site, you'll scroll down a little bit, and you'll find his phone number, and you'll find an email, and you can contact Dick and the other folks living there on Green Fire Farm. And you can start your own odyssey of both thought and action to live better with the world regeneratively. There's a lot of words there that once you learn the deep meaning of them, I'm pretty sure it'll empower you to live much better on this earth in harmony with all of our neighbors. So, Dick, thank you for this long-term vision, starting from nuclear sub, getting into more and more peaceable relations with the wider portions of creation, and sharing that with the other people of the world so that we have a better hope of coming to these peaceful terms. Thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. Certainly my pleasure, Mark, and really appreciate your interest and long-term faithfulness and energies toward helping us all understand more and connect more and holding it in the light and getting on with things. You can find Dick Hogan and the Green Fire community via the web at greenfirefarm.org. It'll be worth the talk and the visit. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production help on today's broadcast, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.